Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. We are thrilled to have you join us here at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in downtown Atlanta. And I'm even more excited to welcome one of my newest and best friends, Rabbi Peter Berg, the senior rabbi of the temple just down the street in the neighborhood, a man of great spiritual and religious leadership in a place of great historic significance, both in terms of Judaism in Atlanta, but also in our country. So welcome, Rabbi. It's so great to have you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with friends. This, oh, is, really, yes, this is really fun. Oh, good, good, good. Well, St. Luke's loves you. Well, and, I feel the uh, same way. People are very excited about your being here. So rather than my um, messing up an introduction, I would love it if you would take a minute first before we get into the content uh, for you to talk a little bit about um, how long have you been in Atlanta, how long have you been at the temple, uh, your educational background, et cetera. Sure. Uh, I have been in Atlanta for 12 years. I'm originally from New Jersey, but I feel like after 12 years, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the real thing now. Uh, I still talk a little bit like I'm from New Jersey, but, but I, I really feel like I'm here. Uh, and uh, I, my education, I'm here with my wife and my three kids. Um, uh, educationally, I, uh, I went to college in, at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. My parents say they sent me there because they were um, sick of sending me to Washington, D.C. to march and protest every weekend, and they would just make it easier. So I was, that's where I went to school, and I, I love being in the center of it all. Uh, and then I went to rabbinical school at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, which is the Reform Jewish Movement Seminary, first year in Jerusalem and then four years in New York City. Um, and then I, three pulpits. My first was at Temple Emanuel in Dallas, Texas. My second at Temple Beth Or in Washington Township, New Jersey. And uh, now uh, this incredible opportunity at the Temple in Atlanta. Uh, wonderful. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. So glad you're here. I'm a, I'm a son of uh, Georgia and uh, was uh, educated and trained and ordained in Atlanta. So I feel like I'm a son of Atlanta. So on one level, although I've been away for many years, uh, but on one level, I feel like I can welcome you. So Thank welcome, you. Rabbi. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, I, and I love the fact that you and I share so many deep friendships. I know. We know, we know so many people in common and, and, um, and, Everybody loves you. That's the greatest thing. Like you, you have such a fan club. It's amazing to hear. Thank you. I love all those friends. Um, you know, the great thing about my 21 years in Pasadena, uh, where I met so many of our common friends, is that we uh, also were a very interfaith organization, and we had a marvelous sage who was Muslim, and he said, to be religious in the 21st century is to be interreligious. Yes. yes. And... Um, I really believe that with all oh, my me heart. Too. Me too. And uh, that's uh, the, the joy of being in Atlanta and experiencing something that really happened while I was away. I was ordained at St. Luke's for 30, 35 years ago or 36 now. And now St. Luke's is such an interreligious place with relationships with you. Uh, although I must note that my experience of particularly Episcopal churches in the South, that Episcopal churches in large cities in the South always have this deep abiding affinity with synagogues yes. in the South. In Dallas, that was the case when I was, was in it? Dallas too, yeah. Yeah, 
I was in Jackson, Mississippi for a while, and that was the case there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that certainly feels to be the case. And uh, just to be putting things in the, into the record, there is um, from time to time a strong to maybe weakened, but re I think it's on the flow again, uh, a thing called the corridor, the inner downtown corridor of congregations, faith communities. And so well, you and I are in that together. Yeah, we our, our congregations have a long and proud history of, of interfaith cooperation and it, um, it's time to make it even stronger, right? Indeed. Oh, oh no doubt of it. No doubt of it. So, Rabbi, um, I love to be around rabbis, and I love to be around uh, practicing Jews who really are focused in on the kind of the unique Jewish perspective on all of life, family life, worship life, but certainly life in the culture and in society. And I would just love to spend a few minutes of our time together hearing you articulate what that unique orientation to life. And it's, it's not divorce from Christianity because, you know, our leader died a Jew and rose a Jew and on and on and on. So we are Jewish also. And it's certainly not devoid from the other Abrahamic religion. Uh, but if you would just kind of flesh that out a little bit, how do you see life because you are Jewish? That's a great question. Of course, I can't get past the, the initial statement, I like to be around rabbis. I don't hear that too often. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> um, um, uh, no, I think it's true. Um, rabbis often um, like to think about um, life through a, through a Jewish lens on the one hand, but I will also add, certainly from my tradition, from our, our reform tradition, um, you know, also see life through a universal lens as well and see ourselves all as children of one God. And I, I actually think part of the unique idea about Judaism is trying to look through those two lenses at the same time. What is particular about being Jewish and what is universal about being Jewish and about being, you know, just a child of, of God. Uh, but, you know, there are some particularities. You know, Jews often look at life through the prism of the past, meaning what have we learned from our history that helps to inspire our future? And we, we have suffered a lot of tragedy. I mean, anti-Semitism has been with us for uh, more than 3,000 years. So we, we, uh, so, many, so much of what's happening is reflected through that lens of, of anti-Semitism. And it, be it you know, the, the Crusades or the, the plague to have something relevant to today, uh, or uh, you know, the, the Holocaust. I mean, there are tropes of anti-Semitism that have repeated throughout history, and they just don't stop. So that, that's certainly um, one area, but just also the lens of what we learned throughout history in general. Uh, we were uh, exiled from the temple and we had to learn how to live and reinvent ourselves anew again. And so that's a skill that Jews have, have just learned how to do over the centuries and passed on from generation to generation. A second is probably the way that we read the, the Bible and understand the Torah. Uh, and there's a, you know, there are, hermeneutic specific devices that, 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 that Jews tend to use in, in the way that we read and interpret the Bible. And um, the most notable is the notion of a Hebrew word that is called midrash, which means uh, to search out. 
And you know, the idea is that we take any given text in, in, in the Torah or in the Bible and we ask three questions. How is it relevant uh, or how was it relevant in biblical times? What did it mean in its day? Two, how has it been understood over the years by rabbis and scholars at every juncture of life in medieval times, in, you know, right, in, in Spain, in France, in Germany? Uh, and, and what does it mean to us today? Right? How does that same biblical text, what did it mean uh, to the ancient listener, to someone in France in, in medieval times? And what does it mean today in the middle of, of COVID-19? The same biblical text. So I think you know, there's a unique lens to the way we read. And you know, I could do this forever, I won't, but I'll add one more, which is of course Israel and, and sort of this notion of, of a, a homeland uh, for the, um, not only the Jewish people, but so many religious groups consider uh, denominations and sects, Israel, a homeland. And how can we, how can it be a home, the only homeland for the Jewish people, but also be a religious and holy place that so many people call home? Yeah. So, you know, those are three just to get the ball rolling. Yeah. And so if I don't, if you don't mind, let me toss it yeah. back to you. Yeah. So two, well, three associations that I have with Judaism, um, well, I mean, I could go on and on. They're more yeah. now crowding my brain. <laughs> Me too. Uh, but where do you where do you put the Exodus in? It seems to me that that is such a central hermeneutic lens yeah. through which Jews interpret everything. Thank God. Yeah. So what's interesting about that the Exodus experience, which which you know, in in, in the scope of the Torah, it, you know, is from Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It's the whole. It's you know all of the Torah minus Genesis is consumed by the, by the Exodus story. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, it, it, we, it, for us, it's the definitive uh, Jewish narrative and um, uh, you know, our, our entire theology to some extent is, is bound up in, in, in the Exodus narrative. Um, uh, right. This, this idea, you know, uh, um, some people call it liberation theology, right. But this idea right. that, uh, uh, um, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God set us free. And the question is, what you know? What can we learn from that? Um, from that 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 idea? Um, uh, certainly, that we should have no idols. Uh, you know uh, that that you know idolatry and enslavement are intertwined. Um, uh, um, but that we should get to the essence continually of knowing. God um, and doing justice. And uh, that means that there's slavery in the world today um, and people who need to be set free. And that we have an, an obligation to do that work um, because it's our core story. And so, for example, when um, the temple started working on the issue of preventing human trafficking of minors, which by now we all know is one of the worst, uh, you know, cities in the world for, for human trafficking. Uh, uh, um, the, the, the theological frame for doing that work is, is the Exodus story because these are young minors who are literally enslaved and, and need to be set free. What's interesting about the, this liturgically is that it's not limited as one might think just to the Passover experience when we, have our satyrs and retell the story, but all of Jewish liturgy, 
every service, a weekday service, a Friday night service, Shabbat service, a Saturday morning Shabbat service, all the holidays um, have utilized a line from the Bible, from Exodus, who is like you, eternal God, among all the gods that are worshiped. And we sing it in Hebrew. Uh, and um, it reminds us that, that this responsibility is ongoing. It's, it's, the, it's our core essence. Yeah. Um, the other, so thank you. That I, I was taking uh, notes. Uh, that'll preach, uh, Rabbi. So watch out. <laughs> uh oh. I'm, I'm the greatest derivative preacher in the world. So yeah, I'm we, quoting we, you. We all are. We all yeah. are. Um, and and the other, so the Exodus leading to justice, leading to liber liberation. Da, da, da. Yeah. Also, I have this association with rabbis, this phrase, tikkun olam. So unpack that a little bit, please. Sure. Inviting so, you for another sermon right now. Yeah, so, so tikkun olam comes from two Hebrew words. Um, tikkun from the Hebrew verb litaken, which means to fix or repair, and olam, which is the Hebrew word for world, to fix and repair the world. Uh, and it comes from a Kabbalistic or a mystical idea that um, most, you know, most Kabbalistic mystical ideas don't become mainstream, but it would be hard to imagine a Jewish concept uh, that has become more mainstream than tikkun olam. Right. Uh, so, you know, most people just take it on the simple value of the two words, which means we, our job is to fix and repair the world. And that's true. But it actually has a core theology, um, which goes back to this, uh, the, the idea that um, uh, it, it's a... It, it, it would take me a long time to explain. I'll just do it quickly. That um, uh, that uh, vessels shattered, God's vessels shattered in the creation of the world, uh, because there was no place to contain them. And it's you know it's this idea that um, you know God has to sort of take a step back in order to make room for humans to to actually be humans. And so these vessels shatter, and these broken pieces are um, are what has to be put back together again. So it, it has a mystical underpinning to it, um, but, but so many Jewish people of so many, you know, of the four Jewish denominations understand that tikkun olam, world repair, is, um, is, is one, of our, one of our great missions. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a, there's a uh, there, you know, there's a, there's a saying in, 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 the, in the Talmud that the world depends on three things, on Torah, which is learning, on avodah, which is worship, and on gemilut chasadim, which is acts of loving kindness, which we understand as world repair. Those are the three things on which the entire world stands. Mm. You know, and uh, the the National Episcopal Church has put out a kind of a, a scheme for us to use as we're living through this post-George Floyd murder. Yeah. Moment. And interestingly enough, it is learn, pray, and act which actually there you go with what you just said you know but yeah it, that, that's exactly right and it, it come you know you could attribute it to the year 200 in in, in, the, in the Talmud yeah 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 uh, but it, but it's so you know you know talk about George Floyd you know those issues and and liberation theology and tikkun olam that's why so many Jews care um, as of course so many uh, episcopals do about um, doing this work and really having tough conversations because um, um, it's, it's not, what's happening now is not right and not just. And, right, right. Yeah. 
So and and there's all the healing and the liberation. And yeah. Wrapped up in all of that. Of yeah. Theologically, from any faith tradition, this work is so critical. Absolutely. Uh, well, clearly, we could spend two or three forums just talking theologically. Yeah. But but let's let's do a little bit of Atlanta history. Sure. Um, so unfortunately, there. Um, let me start over. Unfortunately, and this is not to be edited out. Uh, I like to put all my flaws in here. Unfortunately, bombing of synagogues has been a reality in America and particularly in the South. And um, I'm very, very acquainted, much acquainted with that in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, but let's talk about Atlanta because there were those infamous um, bombing of your temple. And if you could just describe that, and then I have a question to ask you that relates to today. But sure. what happened? In 1958, in October of 1958, um, the temple was bombed by white supremacists. Uh, it, it, it wasn't out of nowhere in that um, Rabbi Rothschild of blessed memory had been delivering um, uh, nonstop sermons on the issue of racial justice and integration. Uh, it, it, you know, it became the core of his, his, you know, his mission in Atlanta, which wasn't his mission when he first got here. He came here actually to bring more tradition to the Jewish community. Wow. He got here from Pittsburgh and saw what was happening. It, you know, he just, you know, you know, everything I read suggests that he just couldn't believe uh, uh, what he saw. And he became close with Dr. King. And I mean, sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon trying to help um, not just the congregation, but the city, because so, you know, his sermons became very popular um, amongst the entire city um, uh, to try to, to help us make a difference. So um, white supremacists literally bombed the temple. Nobody was hurt, but the, you know, there was significant damage. Um, the, the churches in the Peachtree Corridor immediately came to, to uh, stand with the temple and by the temple. Um, including, um, uh, you know, supporting in every way, opening up spaces for, for our worship and religious school. Um, and um, Janice Rothschild Bloomberg, Rabbi Rothschild's widow, uh, who's an active member of our community in her 90s today, um, you know, said a long time ago that it was the bomb that healed. No. And in many ways, um, you know, it's because of the way the community came together and because of the message that Rabbi Rothschild was able to communicate. And by the way, he gave a sermon from Isaiah and none shall make them afraid the very next uh, Shabbat. Um, uh, you know, again, not disheartened about the, the work that we have to do on racial justice and integration. Uh, it was also the bomb that healed because um, uh, Leo Frank was a member of the temple. And, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the, there was so much uh, anti-Semitism, anti and, and it was so challenging and difficult to be Jewish during the Frank days uh, that that um, the temple bombing helped to heal the community. And this is um, Janice Bloomberg's thesis, um, in, it helped to heal us in, in many, many ways. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, there's another story that I want to tell you real quick, because it's, it's so incredible, um, from, from around the same time period that 
you know, so many people know the story of the bombing, but don't know as well uh, this story, which you can find, by the way, in the Center for Civil and Human Rights here in Atlanta. Um, in 1964, Dr. King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. And uh, uh, the city had to figure out how do we want to honor Dr. King because he's ours, right? You know, we, we, we can take credit for Dr. King in Atlanta. Um, but not that many people were anxious to do it. There were some ministers um, and Rabbi Rothschild. Uh, and uh, eventually, with the help of Coca-Cola, uh, were able to convince the business community that this was the right thing to do. Coca-Cola then and, and now, obviously, you know, <laughs> is very influential. Right. And uh, the first integrated dinner where black and white sat together, integrated, was in 1964 at this dinner to honor Dr. King for receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. And Rabbi Rothschild, uh, uh, who, you know, my predecessor, of course, Rabbi Alvin Sugarman, our emeritus is in between us, um, and, and my teacher, um, Rabbi Rothschild gave, uh, presented the, you know, a gift on behalf of the city of Atlanta. Um, and I'll show you because it's right here. Uh, uh, this, is a, this is a copy of the program um, uh, for the, the recognition dinner um, in 1964. And you can see, you know, the ministers that spoke and wow. uh, Rabbi Rothschild. So it's, it's, um, it's such an important part of Atlanta history and our temple history um, that I, had to throw that in. Was that the famous dinner at the driving club? No, this is at the, the Dinkler Hotel. Oh, uh, the first Dink integrated dinner at the, um, that, that took place. Wow. Um, so um, thanks for that. I may, uh, when we're back together, I just may walk down and get a copy of that. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make you a copy. Uh, Dr. King is, oh, such a North Star for me. So, um, but I want to stay with that period because um, a Christian hero in that time was Ralph McGill. Mm -hmm. And the series of articles that he wrote about the bombing of the temple, in which he pointed out something that I think is so crucial these days, is that there had developed an atmosphere or a climate that gave rise to that act of violence. It was an atmosphere, a systemic, climatized sense of anti-Semitism and white supremacy, which erupted in that. And I would just love for you to reflect on that because, let me go ahead and put all my cards on the table. When we're talking about racism, um, and Robin D'Angelo is making a really important point of this when she talks about white fragility. To say that racism is not a moment, it's a system. Antisemitism is not a moment, it's a system. It is the water we swim in. Yeah. And I would just love for you to address that, not only practically in the life we're living right now, but it seems to me that Jewish, my Jewish friends, really have it in their hearts about the reality of systemic thinking and systemic evil. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, um, you're so right about the Ralph McGill uh, writing. Um, for those who, um, 
you know, like me who didn't grow up here to, to, to read those pieces, um, uh, they're, they're, they're almost prophetic. Uh, and, and, uh, and I would encourage everyone who's listening to find a way I, you know, I have copies of them, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm sure that you could probably get them at the archives of the, uh, no, you can Google them and they're very, very accessible They're And they're, they're, it's, um, you know, some of them to me are like reading a fine sermon. I mean, they're yes. just, uh, and they read that way. And, and I, I think it's important, you know, he, he, you know, he gets a lot of the credit for helping Atlanta to wake up in that time. And I'm so, so glad you pointed that out. Um, uh, and, I, and I also think that you're correct that uh, um, there, there is systemic racism and systemic anti-Semitism. And, um, and it should be noted that it is both on the left and the right that, that um, uh, you know, um, I always say to people, don't don't worry about castigating the other side, whatever side you're on, <laughs> you know, whichever whatever your belief is, it's it's in both places, yeah. And uh, and it's uh, and it's scary, uh, 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 but systemic also means that it's institutionalized, and it and it means um, uh, that there's a lot of work to do. Uh, um, first and foremost, in education, um, because it's so deeply rooted and so embedded in everything we are and everything we do that, that um, we don't even notice it. Uh, and it's everywhere. It's at all of our synagogues and churches. It's at all of our institutions and um, um, nobody's free from it. And, and we have to, we have, this time in which we live demonstrates to us the, you know, the work, the work that needs to be done. Um, I, I will say that, um, you know, one of the things that we've really started to understand and learn is that um, white supremacy in many ways um, is at the root of so much of this, of this evil. Uh, and people who are white supremacists are often anti-Semites and uh, uh, anti-gay and anti-immigrant and anti, you know, they don't like anyone except themselves. Right. And, um, and, and I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges uh, that we face is this, this notion of, of white supremacy yeah. uh, in our world. And, and, and I feel like uh, um, the prophetic language of the, the Rabbi Rothschilds and the Ralph McGills and the Dr. Kings today really have to, you know, it has to speak out against all hatred because we're, we're all, you know, I said it earlier, we're all children of one God. And, and, you know, it's, it's, um, what if we saw it as the world as God speaking, you know, Arabic on Fridays and Hebrew on Saturdays and, and Latin on Sundays or whatever the metaphor is. Uh, but we're, we're all children of one God. And uh, we, 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 this, the, the, the pure hatred um, is so deeply systemic and problematic. Yeah. Peter, what's the role of fear in hatred? I think it, it's big. Um, and, uh, I, you know, what happens is uh, from the, um, people, um, uh, you, you like what you know and what you're familiar with. Mm. And um, what you're not familiar with, you know, become, becomes fearful. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there then generally we see a kind of hatred, not, you know, somebody holding a, a, 
a flag with a swastika on it, you know, just overt racism, right. but um, it's a different kind of racism uh, or a different kind of anti-Semitism, yeah. um, which is, uh, you know, a fear that other people who are not like you are moving into your neighborhood or uh, populating the school board or, you know, whatever the case may be. And uh, um, the best way uh, to overcome that fear is to be in relationship with people yeah. and to be in relationship, not only with people that are similar to you, but people who are different from you. And it could be, a, it means different races, different genders, different religions. Um, uh, uh, that's how we overcome a fear of people who are, are not like us. Yeah. Uh, and um, when you're in a relationship with someone and you know someone um, and um, um, uh, you know, you begin to empathize, and 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 I and I think that that makes a, a, a you know I think it's something we all need to be doing. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, again, we could stay there for a long time, but let let's go to twenty twenty. Okay. And um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask us to bracket COVID nineteen for a second. And talk about the fact that you and I were involved virtually last Sunday, uh, several Sundays ago, um, with Ebenezer, yeah. uh, another one of our sister congregations in the corridor, who were really leading in many, many ways, particularly I have in mind right now, um, the elimination of mass incarceration. Um, but also there seems to be from the African-American, predominantly African-American churches that I'm studying and have friends leading, there's some education and re-narration going on and saying, let's make sure we know our history here. Yes. This is the American history. And um, it, it was through your generosity that I was included in a, a prayer uh, there and got to see my dear friend, Sharon Brass. Um, yes. Yeah, so talk a little bit about what led to that moment, because clearly you are part of the connective tissue of justice making in Atlanta. And so, and this is one of the areas. Speak well, to that, please. I, I, thank you. I'm not sure that I, I don't know about the, uh, the but um, yeah, um, well, first of all, we, we have a, an historic relationship with uh, Ebenezer Baptist that goes back uh, uh, not only to the civil rights movement, but but in, in you know in recent years as well with a pulpit exchange. Uh, but we began doing work together, um, and and really trying to involve the whole Atlanta faith community, but the whole Atlanta community in general, um, uh, around a couple of issues. The first is record restriction work, uh, because what happens is there are hundreds of people, thousands, walking around in. Um, let's just say Fulton County to start, um, uh, may have a, a, a minor nonviolent criminal record. Let's say they shoplifted 15 years ago and the, uh, nobody's prosecuting, it's stuck in the system. And you know what happens when it's stuck in the system. You can't get a job, you can't get a house, you can't adopt a child, you can't travel, you can't get a loan, you know, you're, you're paralyzed. And so we started to ask along with Ebenezer, what would happen if we, could restrict these records that are never going to ever be prosecuted. Um, and amazingly, the work has bipartisan support. At the time, the uh, Democratic mayor and at the time, the Republican governor 
both supported that work. Um, I'm saying at the time because they were different governors and mayors, um, and I think they do now as well. Uh, and uh, and so so it really is interesting that it that that it, there, there's not a political issue here. It's something we all agree with. Um, and people would come in at 10 o'clock on Veterans Day because we also tried to do this work for veterans. And uh, an hour later at 11 o'clock, hundreds of people left with their record free and clear. Judges were in the temple and in Ebenezer signing, you know, signing. And uh, we even worked, advocated to get a law passed to make this um, automatic, which um, is, is now in play. So it's really, um, you know, there's real momentum for it. The second, um, regarding incarceration itself, which you pointed to was the thrust of the program we were at, um, is that uh, uh, America is the mass incarceration of the world. And uh, what that means in plain language is nobody puts more people in jail in the entire world than the United States. And that's tough to think about when you think about, um, you know, some non-democratic countries, you know, and what's going on. We are, we are dramatically worse than that. And nobody comes in even close second. It's not like the, the next country is even close to the United States. It's not a good place to be. And um, Georgia puts more people in jail in America than any other state. So we have a lot of, a lot of work to do. And we started putting together uh, an initiative to end mass incarceration. We put on a national conference, the Temple and Ebenezer and Auburn Seminary in New York. Uh, and uh, really, you know, we had a few hundred people come to Atlanta to, to learn about this issue. And it's really from a faith perspective. Um, you know, we're, we're really diving deep to try to understand why this should be the faith communities. Uh, you know, if you believe in liberation theology, the faith communities, you know, one of our top number one issues right now. And um, the tragic events of, uh, that we have been um, witnessing uh, uh, with uh, Rayshard Brooks and, 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 you know, really um, brings to light um, these issues and, and, and more and more people are, are, are getting involved in this work and um, it's, it's gonna be very difficult. It's not easy, but, I, but, I, but I'm really proud of it. And I, I feel as strong as I've ever felt that this is the, the right thing for us to be doing. Once again, Tikkun Olam, Exodus, Liberation, just, yeah. Justice Shall You Pursue. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah, and, and you know, this is, this is just the work we can all roll up our sleeves and do together. Indeed, indeed. So, um, Rabbi, you've got you. I you recently invited me to go sleep on the streets. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. So, yeah. uh, tell that story, please. Yeah, um, I was part of Leadership Atlanta uh, a number of years ago, and a lot of my classmates from my Leadership Atlanta class are very involved in Covenant House, uh, and Covenant House is this extraordinary organization in town um, that helps to move homeless teens um, into this incredible, beautiful facility and to, to give them the resources um, to no longer be on the streets. And, and it's really important, boy, we're tying everything together tonight. It's really important um, in, in, uh, with the human trafficking because so many of the teens that are, that are 
trying to escape life on the streets are, are have been trafficked and have found a way to escape and are completely homeless. Uh, so uh, Covenant House is this organization that, that supports them. And there is uh, an executive sleep out that I've done it now for I think five years, maybe six years, where you know we raise money and um, we sleep out and uh, um, you know it's a substantial portion of the budget for Covenant House each year. And this year for the first time, we are doing, we're having a clergy team so, uh, you know, there are all these teams, it's based on industry. So there's, a, you know, the accountants team and the, you know, uh, you know, all these different business industries. And but there's never been a clergy team. And the clergy are such an important part of Atlanta life. So we're going to have our first team. I, I hope you'll accept and join me. But uh, and um, and uh, we sleep out, we we we, we uh, meet with the uh, uh, the, the youth who live there and um, it, it's a transformative day, not only in what we learn and experience and the interactions that we have, but in the money that we raise for Covenant House that is so desperately needed. Yeah. Well, I'm taking every step uh, so far. So I'll be with you uh, in August uh, on a Zoom meeting. Yes. You'll learn more about it. So, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. But we, we have a plan for doing this in the COVID, uh, COVID safe way. So. Yeah, good deal. Well, we're, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up. But I, there are just two or three other things that I need to, I don't know, say from the heart. Um, the reason my wife and I live in Alabama, uh, where we've never lived before, after I retired from uh 21 years in Southern California mm. and spending so many time. We, we had a rabbi in residence at our church. Wow. Had, uh, yeah. Um, so <sighs> Leonard Bierman of blessed memory and of Leo Beck temple yes. uh, in Bel Air would have my wife hoping me over for many Friday night meals and even some satyrs. And, um, you know, I, I, I've never met a, a Christian who's gone to a Seder who didn't say, oh, we must have a Seder all the time, you know, right, right. And, and, I, and I get that. Uh, uh, the story of the narrative of liberation of Exodus is so important. Yeah. Oh, bef before I go on, I think I'll remember, this is the way my brain works now that I'm 72. I've got to come back and say, uh, Rabbi, that the other day I was doing some contemplative reading and um, Thomas Keating was talking about how oftentimes contemplative breakthroughs yeah. happen when we're in really tight places. Yeah. And being in tight places is huge in Judaism. And uh, he went on to say something I'd never thought about. He could, I mean, doesn't Egypt mean tight place or restriction? Yes, narrow. So um, Mitzrayim means a narrow place. And, and so, it, in, you know, Egypt is, you know, if you look at the map, Egypt is narrow. But yes, it has a connotation of the, 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 the narrow places that getting out of the narrowness in our thinking and in our way of life. Yes. Yeah. So he was making that point yeah. about how God is the God of getting us through narrow places and when we're in a narrow place and i was reading 
COVID-19. We haven't even talked about that much, but, and, 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 and then, and then he said, but all of us get into the world by coming into the world through a narrow place. Yeah. And I've never made the biological connection. Yeah. Isn't that great? And it, I mean, it's stunning. And then yeah. and it, theologically it connects Genesis like the birth of the, the nation and the birth yeah. of Exodus and the, the, yeah. So yeah, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. All right. I'm, I'm having a glory attack here. Uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Um, but to, to go on to, back to my friend's house and why we're in Alabama at important points in those table liturgies, there comes the blessing of the children. Yes. Oh, Peter. And, you know, we didn't have our grandchildren with us, you know, in California. And I said, hope we are going to go live near our grandchildren so that we can have meals weekly to bless our grandchildren. Say a word about that. That's so powerful. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say only a word because I wrote my rabbinic thesis on this. So I have about 900 pages on it. For it. And if you can't sleep one night, I'll send it to you. Um, uh, but uh, um uh, the, 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 it's, it's the priestly blessing. It's Numbers chapter six, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the light of God's presence shine upon, right? Uh, and um, uh, it has other functions in Jewish tradition. So the reason it's called the priestly blessing is because it's the prayer that the priest would recite um, uh, on behalf of the congregation. And, and in, in uh, traditional uh, services, it still operates in that way today. Our tradition, the reform tradition, has uh, uh, made it more inclusive so that, um, um, you know, everybody can bless each other. It doesn't just have to be uh, hereditary from the priestly class. Uh, but um, uh, but the, the, the premise is that uh, uh, parents offer a special blessing to their children. And before we recite chapter six of Numbers, there's a special blessing for boys and a special blessing for girls, and then this sort of group blessing. and um, uh, it's really very special. One of our rabbis just uh, just uh, had a child this week, and uh, so uh, you know it was exciting to watch uh, him and his wife bless their daughter for the first time. You know, uh, with this ancient with this ancient blessing, and it occurs each and every week. And it's one of the highlights of our week, our Shabbat table at home. Uh, so powerful. Yeah. And then to, just to sign off, uh, we we had this. Wonderful, we the world because I I do want to underscore something you made the point you made earlier that Judaism was about universality as well. It is about a people, but particularly the prophets were so universal in absolutely everything they said. Nevertheless, uh, so forget my claiming this poet as ours. He was a Roman Catholic Irish poet. John O'Donohue, and uh -huh. he has a, he has a book named "To Bless the Space Between Us." Oh, that's beautiful! Yeah, and that we have a responsibility we we have a responsibility to be aware that there's space between absolutely every person group of people come together, and we have a responsibility to bless that space because yes. too frequently okay. he didn't get into the polarization trap that we live in. You know, there's polarization and division, and um, you are a blesser of the space between you and me and between the temple and St. Luke's and in this conversation. And I'm deeply grateful for your blessing the space between us, Rabbi. 
My friend, thank you for that. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said. But I, I'm grateful for our relationship. I'm grateful for the relationship between our two religious institutions. And uh, um, it was such an honor to be here today. This was so much fun. I forgot that we're talking to all these people. I feel like I'm just talking to you. It's great. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much. And thank everyone for tuning in. We will continue to have a marvelous relationship with rather Rabbi Peterberg and the temple. And we are thrilled that you were here today. Thank Blessings, you. everyone. Thanks, Peter. Thank you.